The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 8 and verse 12. The 12th verse in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We come back for the fifth time to a consideration of this great and mighty statement. One of these great summaries of the whole of the gospel. Certainly one of the most comforting and encouraging statements that anybody can hear and listen to in this world of ours this evening. Here stands this blessed person who was in this world nearly 2,000 years ago. Appeared to be but an ordinary man, had worked as a carpenter, didn't belong to any schools, had no money, no influence, apparently nothing to recommend him at all. And above all, the one who had come from Galilee and from Nazareth. It was proverbial that no good could or ever had come out of Nazareth. But that's where he came from, and yet here he is in Jerusalem. On an important occasion in connection with the festival. And he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, here are we met together in a world that is much the same as it was when he was here and when he uttered these words. A world with a great deal of darkness, a world of confusion, a world of sin, a world of shame. And that is why we are in this service this evening. We all of us are aware of a need and of a lack. We are aware of trouble and confusion. And here we are confronted by this extraordinary claim which he makes in this way and which I've been reminding those who attend here regularly really means this. I and I alone am the light of the world. That's his claim. Not only that he has the light to give us, but that there is no light apart from him. It's an exclusive claim, and Christianity is exclusive. This isn't one of a number of possibilities. It is the only one. We are not interested in any other religions. This is the message. This is the word of God. This is the truth of God. This is God's word. This is God's power unto salvation and there is none other. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. But thank God we needn't dwell too much on that this evening. We rather want to look at this positively. On the fact that it is in him. And of course that is the, the message of the Christian church. The Christian church has got a message of comfort, has got a message of cheer. The prophet Isaiah, anticipating it, puts it in these words, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. God forbid that anybody should gather the impression that Christianity is something negative. Just a protest against this, that, or the other. No, no. Gospel means good news. And it is good news. It's the only good news. It's the only good news in the world at this moment. Are you aware of any other? Can you find any other anywhere? Can you find any comfort, any consolation, any hope? Well, he stood up and said, there is none. He and he alone is the light of the world. And it's still true this evening, my friends. When you face the realities of life, when you face the problems in your own personal life and the whole problem of humanity, and of the world. I say if you do that honestly and radically, you will come inevitably to the conclusion that there is no hope whatsoever apart from the hope which we find 
Yeah. And we've seen how he gives us this light, this hope. You see, our fundamental need is the need to know God. This is God's world. It was made by God. And God made everything in the world in such a way that it really cannot function truly and properly apart from him. You know, one of these old psalmists, the men who wrote the 104th Psalm, he looked out upon his world in his day. And this is what struck him. He saw that everything in life and in nature, apart from men, seemed to be living according to the rule of its being and of its nature. He looked at the rivers coming down from the mountains and going into the sea, and then he could see that the sun was shining on the sea and absorbing up the moisture, and that it came down in rain again on the mountains and set the river going again. Perfect. Looked at the animals. Saw the swallows coming back in the spring regularly every year, departing again to the warmer climes in the autumn. Looked at the trees, looked at the animals, looked at everything. And he said everything is obeying the law of its being. Everything is living according to the fundamental rules of life that God has placed within them. All except man. But man, he saw, was contradicting the law of his nature and of his being. Man was a fool. And the psalmist, looking at it all, came to this conclusion. It was rather a bitter one, but how well one can understand it. Let the sinners, he said, be consumed out of the earth. Man in sin is a fool. He is contradicting the law of his own being. He doesn't realize, in other words, that he was made by God, he was made for God, and that he cannot live truly and enjoy life as he should, except he be in the right relationship to God. And this is the position. There is nobody, there is nothing, there is no teaching that can bring us to a knowledge of God, except this person. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And you know that is a literal fact. You'll never come to a knowledge of God as Father except in Jesus Christ. He alone has the light we need there. And then we've seen that he alone has the light upon our own nature, on ourselves, on what man is. The trouble is that people don't realize that they've got souls within them. They're living like animals. That's because they don't know the truth about men. And man is a soul. What shall it profit a man, says this same person, Though he gained the whole world and lose his own soul. And men and women are never giving a thought to their souls. Giving a great deal of thought to their bodies, of course. But how much to the soul? That's why the world is as it is. And oh, then you see that. The moment you see that, you come to your next question. Well, very well. If my greatest need is God and to know God, how can I? How can I get there? I realize I've sinned against him. My sin is between me and God. How can I get rid of it? And I can't get rid of it. And nobody else can help you to get rid of it. You can read the books of all the world and the greatest philosophers. Not one of them can tell you how to get rid of the guilt of your sin. Because they don't know how to do it. They haven't got rid of their own guilt if they believe in God at all. There is no way except the one that is indicated here. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Listen to this one who says, I am the light of the world. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank God, my friend, it is possible to lose the guilt of your sin the moment you believe in him. You don't have to work your passage in this matter. You can't get rid of the guilt of your sin. You can't erase the blots out of the book of your life. You can do nothing nor present anything to God that is of the slightest value in his sight. No, no. There's only one way for a man to be reconciled to God and enjoy forgiveness of sins and know that were he to die the next moment he has nothing to fear because he belongs to God and is a child of God. And what is it? Oh, it is just that he believes what this person said that he had come into the world to die for us and our sins and thereby reconcile us to God. 
There it is. He is the light of the world. Well, but is that all? Now there is one thing left. Something more is needed. I see the position, says someone now. I need God and I need to be reconciled. I need forgiveness. And you've shown me how. In Jesus Christ. But how am I to live while I still remain in this world? That's my question. How am I to live a worthy life? Um, how am I to live in a manner that is worthy of the name of man? How can I walk through this world? Perfectly right. But my friend, let's be clear about this before I proceed to consider this particular matter. Your first need, I say, is the need of forgiveness. Let there be no mistake about that. It's no use talking about your life, how you're going to walk, unless you are clear that you are reconciled to God. God won't bless you until you're reconciled to him. People are anxious first and foremost always to get rid of a particular problem. I'm assuring you that you can only get rid of that problem after you are reconciled to God and, in, and are in the right relationship. But having seen that clearly, Having seen that your guilt can only be washed away by the blood of Christ. That it is only by his death that we are reconciled to God. Having seen that, I say, we are then in a position to consider this further question. How am I to live to walk in this world? Well, what's the difficulty? Well, as he puts it, the difficulty is the darkness. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness. And this is the problem that still confronts men and women. What does it mean? What does he mean by talking about this darkness? Well, on a previous occasion we've considered the origin of that darkness. But let us look at it like this. The problem of life and of living is due to two main things. There is darkness outside us and there is darkness inside us. Have you ever considered the darkness that is round and about us? Oh, he says, he that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness. But it's there. It's everywhere round and about us. What do you mean by the darkness, says someone? Well, I mean by the darkness, the way of the world. The kind of life that is being lived by men and women apart from God. That is the darkness. The Bible is constantly saying that. He that is his brother, it says in the first epistle of John, is in the darkness. That is one of the results of being in the dark. The darkness of which our Lord speaks, you see, is this. It is an atmosphere. It's a picture, of course. It's a picture of the difference between night and day. Or the darkness that you have when a thick fog comes down. There you are, it's an atmosphere, and you're surrounded by it, and you can't see your way, and you don't know where you're going. Well, now, that, according to our Lord, is the state of this world in a spiritual sense. So there are many terms used in the scriptures uh, to describe this. It is the mind of the world. It is the outlook of the world. It is what is called the course of this world. Surely we all must be conscious of this, that, there, that we are surrounded in this life by forces of evil and of sin. Is it an easy thing to go straight in this world? Is it an easy thing to keep pure and chaste? Is it an easy thing to control your own mind and your own thinking? No, we all know that it's extremely difficult. Why? Well, because we are living in an atmosphere that is against us. It's a dark atmosphere. The Bible speaks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You know, this is the thing that the world doesn't understand. This is the thing that the statesmen know nothing at all about. But it is the essence of the problem of the individual and of the whole world this evening. This life, this world of ours, is being governed and dominated by the one who is called in the Bible the devil, or the prince of the power of the air, or the god of this world. There are unseen spiritual forces and powers. You can't see them, as you can't see God, who is spirit, 
But there are these evil spirits, there are these foul spirits, the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places, and they are controlling the mentality and the outlook. That's why your summit conferences are not held. That's why they break down when they are held. That is why in spite of all the efforts and the organizing, nothing ever seems to come right. What is it? Oh, it is the devil. It is this evil spirit. Quite apart from us as individuals, quite apart from our individual actions and behavior and conduct, the whole atmosphere of the world is evil. And we are in a very subtle way being influenced by it. We are being controlled by it. Our desires are determined by it. The thing to do, the way of the world, what everybody else is doing, here it is. That is the darkness. And what kind of life does it lead to? Well, unfortunately, there is no need for me to keep you. We are all far too familiar with it, but the Bible describes it very accurately. I read to you that section out of the epistle to the Ephesians just now because there the great apostle Paul gives us a very detailed and accurate description of it. The world then, you see, was as it is now. These people to whom Paul was writing in Ephesus had been brought up as pagans and they were living that typical worldly pagan life. What sort of a life is it? Well, he says it's a life of shame. Did you notice how he puts it? It is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. And the world in which you and I are living tonight is a world of shame. Consider the type and the kind of life that is being lived by men and women who have no interest in God and no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why many of the things they do, they do themselves at night. They wouldn't do them in the day. Why? Because they're shameful. They'd be ashamed to see, to be seen doing them. And it's a shame even to speak of them. Oh, we're all aware of this, are we not? The terrible moral degradation, the depths to which men and women sink and are sinking. All the foulness, all the perversion, all the ugliness of it all. And what makes it so terrible today is this, that people are even trying to defend it and to justify it. That which is even contrary to nature is being defended. That's the state of the world. That's the darkness. Moral muddle and confusion. Fundamental divisions and distinctions made and ordained by God being confused and people even glorifying. They not only do them, says Paul, in writing his first chapter to the Romans, but they not only do them, but they glory in them that do them also. They glory in their shame. They say, evil be thou my good. Everything is upside down. It's a shameful life. And it's not only shameful, but it's ugly. Oh, the ugliness that is coming more and more into the life of this world. Lack of politeness even. Lack of consideration. The harshness, the ugliness. The lack of kindness. And the ordinary courtesies of life. It's an ugly life, he says. And then he noticed another word that he used, and it's so typical of today, the unfruitful works of darkness he speaks about. Unfruitful. Have you ever considered it from that standpoint? If you don't believe in God, and if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and this Christian way of life, and you're giving yourself to the life of the world, and you think it's rather wonderful, let me ask you a simple question. What returns does it give you? What fruit does it give you? He calls it the unfruitful works of darkness. The Apostle Paul was often saying that in writing to the Romans, he says that again. He says, what profit had you then in those things of which now you are ashamed? What returns did they give you then? What have people rarely got to show after they've spent all their money and after they've taken all that drink, which is supposed to be so marvelous and wonderful, what, what does it give them? What fruit does it lead to? When you've lost your character and your chastity and your purity, what's your gain? What have you gained? Is there anything ennobling, uplifting? Is it adding to the value of life? Are you helping to leave a legacy to future generations? No, no. 
the unfruitful works of darkness. That poor man who spends his money on drink and drinks it. What's he doing? He's undermining his health. He's knocking out his own higher powers, his most delicate and most sensitive qualities. He's reducing himself to the level of a beast. He's inflaming all his passions within him. And he wakes up the next morning ill. It's unfruitful. It's of no value to anybody at all. It's vile. It's foul. And it not only is true of something like drink, it's true of everything else which characterizes this life of darkness which men and women apart from God and Christ are living in some shape or form. Oh, you may be very decent, but still living in the dark. There are people who say, I've never got drunk, I've never done these things. Well, you know, I find that many of them are living a life which is so small and so petty that it's almost microscopic. Living on tittle-tattle, living on gossip, living on a little bit of respectability, living for a house. Oh, how small it is, how ugly, how dark. No grand horizons. Nothing to move or to stimulate. The smallness of many a life is really something that baffles description. Well, there it is. That's the kind of atmosphere in which we live. We're all born into a world like that. That is the world tonight apart from God and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's utter darkness. There's nothing to live for. There's no goal to aim at. And there's no value. There's no profit in it. There it is. We are surrounded by that. That is London life. That's the life of every capital tonight, the life of New York, the life of Paris, the thing that is boosted in the papers. Marvelous and thrilling. Well, go in for it if you like. Then I ask you the question, what have you got to show at the end? Where are you? What have you discovered? What truth have you come to know? What have you been building up within yourself? How does it help you to live? How does it help you to die? How does it help you to face the great beyond, beyond death? What's it give you? Nothing. It's dark. It's like a man groping in the dark. He doesn't know where he's going. Knocking his head against walls. Stunned, staggering. And he doesn't know where he is. It's the darkness. But it's not only without, unfortunately, it's within. Did you notice that word of the apostle? He said, ye were sometimes darkness. He says, you were not only in the dark, but there was darkness in you. And it's very important we should realize this. It's because this isn't realized, you know, that so much futile talk is indulged in. And so many organizations are springing up in the modern world in an attempt to solve our problems. They don't realize that the darkness is not only outside us, but it's inside us. I know if the darkness were only outside, well, bring certain powerful arc lamps, develop some sort of searchlight, and you'll dispel the gloom up to a point. I know where I'm going in that car because I've got a great headlight. Yes, but you know when you realize that the darkness is inside you as well as outside you. You realize that that external light is not enough. And the darkness is within. Where? Well, it's in the heart. It's in a man's nature. The trouble with us is not that we are absolutely pure, but that we become polluted by the darkness of the world. People have believed that. Wordsworth, unfortunately, believed that. His great ode, you remember. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing vine. No, they were always there. It's not true to say of any of us that trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. No, says the Bible, I was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. We are born with darkness inside us and we very soon proceed to show that. Man's nature is twisted. It's perverted. This is not being unkind to men. This is being truthful. It's true of every one of us. Ye were sometimes darkness. What do you mean, says someone? I mean this. That there is that in everybody born into this world which loves the darkness and hates the light. Instead of loving the light and hating the darkness. What's the spirit of rebellion that we've all known within us? Why are we attracted by that which is wrong and illicit? Why do we want to do that which we know we shouldn't do? Even though we know that every time we do it, we are sorry and we kick ourselves and are ashamed of ourselves. Why do we go back and do it? What is it? How do you explain that? That's the question. 
How do we explain our own conduct and behavior? Why go back and back, I say, to a thing that you know is wrong? There's only one explanation, my friend. There is something within us stronger than our minds and reason and logic. It's what the Bible calls lust. Even your modern psychologists believe in this. They call them drives now. Certain great drives. Lusts and passions and desires. Deep elemental forces down in the depths of fallen human nature. Governing us, controlling us. Manifesting itself not only physically in the form of sex and drunkenness and lust and desire in that sense, but in terrible lusts of the mind, which are equally bad. There's nothing more ugly in the world than ambition. It's the ugliest of all lusts in many ways. There's nothing more terrible than an ambitious man. He's ruthless. He'll trample on everything to get his will and to get the position he wants. Ambition, one of the most horrible of all the lusts. Let nobody think I'm speaking only of the lusts of the flesh and of the physical frame. Men's whole life is governed by this evil bias, this evil propensity, this thing that always inclines him towards evil. Well, I mustn't keep you. If you want a masterly description of it all, you read the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 7. And there you'll find it. He said, the motions of sins which were within us by the law, they did lead us to all kinds of concupiscence. Here I am, he says, I don't understand myself. With my mind, I want to serve the law of God, but I find another law in my members. There's other law that works in my members, bringing me ever into captivity to the law of sin and death. To desire is with me, but how to perform I know not. This dualism, this contradiction, the mind sees clearly, reason speaks, and yet a man goes and does the other thing. What is it? Oh, it's a law in my members, he says. I'm brought captive. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I'm not in control of myself. And you know this is the truth about every one of us when we really get to know ourselves. Not a man of us, not a woman present can really exercise complete self-control. Not one of us. There is sin within us. There is evil. There is passion. There is lust. There is a power within us greater than ourselves. And we are helpless, slaves and captives. The darkness is not only without in the darkness is also within. And what is the result? Well, that all of us by nature walk in the darkness. That's what our Lord was saying. He's come into the world as light of the world. Why? Well, because the whole world was walking in darkness. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. The world, you see, has become chaotic. That is why the Apostle Paul, in writing his second, chapter, second epistle to the Corinthians, in the fourth chapter and the sixth verse, puts it like this. This is what happens when a man becomes a Christian. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Well, this is what he's saying. He says, you know, I'm preaching, he says, and I'm preaching because of what God has done to me. Well, what has he done? Well, he says, I was like this. My moral and spiritual nature was comparable to the world at the dawn of creation. You go back to the first chapter of Genesis, and there you'll see that we are told that darkness brooded over the face of the deep. Chaos. It was all chaotic. Well, how did the order of creation come into being? Out of the chaos that originally existed. And the answer, you remember, is this. God said, let there be light. And there was light. It was the first moon. And the light having come, then the order is introduced. Things are created. Everything is put in its position. And you have perfection. You have paradise. But it starts with the light. It's exactly the same with me, says Paul. That's why I'm preaching. The God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness at the beginning hath shined in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And my dear friends, that is the message this evening. Man by nature is in a state of chaos. He's a contradiction. This contradiction between mind 
And the other thing that's in the members, mind and lust, reason and desire, inordinate desire and affection. And there's confusion and chaos and everything is upside down. There is man by nature. He's walking in the darkness and there is darkness inside him. Now what our Lord is saying here is this, you see, that there is no light on this problem apart from himself. None at all. And I'm asserting that from this pulpit once more. There is no vestige of hope for any individual apart from this which is in Jesus Christ. Education is an excellent thing, but it doesn't help you here. You can be the most educated man in the country and be dissolute and immoral and the creature of your own lusts and passions. There are many such tonight, alas. I'm not being unfair to them. It's true of everybody. By giving a man knowledge, you can't help him. He knows himself that the thing that he's doing is wrong. He'll feel remorse tomorrow morning. His headache will tell him that he's wrong. His shame will tell him that he's wrong. Back he goes and does it. It isn't education he needs. He already knows. It's power he needs. And he hasn't got it. And education can't give it him. Ideas cannot solve the problem. Ideas have not got legs. Ideas haven't given, cannot give us motive, power, and dynamic. I'm not speaking against education. God forbid you should misunderstand me. It's a value. It does restrain things a little. It has its help, but it cannot solve the problem. Otherwise, the story in your biographies would not be what it is. That some great giant brains and men of the greatest knowledge and of integrity in their profession have been tragic failures in their personal lives. That's why. No, no, education can't do it. Your moral codes can't do it. There is one thing I must say for this present generation. I don't often praise it, but I must be fair and honest. There's one very good thing about today. When I was a boy, I used to hear a phrase like this very frequently. It isn't cricket. It isn't cricket. Or I'd hear another phrase, be a sport. Do you ever hear those phrases now? Of course you don't. Why? Why don't they say now, it isn't cricket? Well, there's only one simple answer to that. We're beginning to know something about cricketers. So it's rather silly to say today it isn't cricket. It's rather silly today to say be a sport. Sport? Read the lives of the sportsmen. When your great cricketers are guilty of infidelity and of behaving like cads to their own wives. Don't talk to me about it. It isn't cricket. That nonsense has gone. Thank God for that. Thank God that we're in 1960 in that respect. That that sort of rubbish and nonsense has been made to look so silly and ridiculous. No, no, it's no use telling a man to be a sport. That doesn't work, obviously. We've got rid of those idiotic cliches. That's something gained. And then, you see, it can't be done by societies and by clubs and by things like that. We are multiplying them today. But, you know, they're not succeeding and they can't succeed. Obviously they can't. The darkness is inside. They say, now if only we could get these people off the streets and get them into the nice, bright educational atmosphere and cultural environment, then they'll be all right. Well, I'm not against these things. Do it all. I say, do it all. Do as much as you can. Anything that lessens the problem, it's not my business to criticize it. But what I am to criticize is this, that men and women really believe that that's going to cure the problem. It never has. It never will. You can put a man into a new house, but you won't make a new man of him. We have seen garden cities before now turned into slums, haven't we? And people were surprised at that they shouldn't have been. The Bible's always told us that. You know, if by putting a man into a new house you could make a new man of him, well, it would be a great insult to human nature, wouldn't it? What a small thing human nature would be. You know, there is a sense in which I rejoice when I hear that some poor fellow has turned his new home into a slum. Why? Well, it tells me this, you see, that man's too big for that. You can't change a man by manipulating his surroundings. No, no. The problem is inside. 
None of these efforts can change men. Moral effort, it's all right, but it'll never succeed. No, no, there's only one hope. Here he is again. Look at him. In the name of God, I say, listen to him. And tell everybody to listen to him. That we don't waste any more time. He said it all. He stands there and he says, I and I alone am the light of the world. And he's the only light here as he is everywhere else. What does a man need? Well, he needs forgiveness, but he doesn't only need forgiveness. What does he need? He needs what Christ alone can give him. What does he give us? How is he the light of the world at this point? Ah, says somebody, it's his teaching. I always thought it's wonderful. Sermon on the Mount. That's what people need. Social gospel. Sermon on the Mount. Teach them how to live. Then they'll stop war and this and that. Teaching of Christ only. Rubbish and nonsense. How can a man carry out the teaching of Christ in his own strength? (laughs) If he can't live up to his own code and to his own endeavors... How can he keep the Sermon on the Mount? My friends, if you stopped talking so much about the Sermon on the Mount and began to read it, you'd think very differently concerning it. Sermon on the Mount, something that a man in his own strength and nature can carry out. Go back to the beginning, and this is its first word. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You try and make yourself poor in spirit. In a world that's always trying to boost your ego. Impossible. While you're in the dark, you'll never be poor in spirit. It isn't the teaching of Christ. Ah, well, says somebody, is he the light of the world to me in this respect by giving me an example? Here he is. He lived in this world, as you say. He was born in poverty. He shared the fate of ordinary men and women. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Does he, I wonder, give us light and deliver us by giving us a shining example? And seeing him, we decide to follow him. Is that being a Christian? To follow Christ. You know, it's so nonsensical that it's almost insulting to refute it. That a man who can't live up to his own standard still less please other people. That such a man should be capable of imitating Christ. Have you ever tried to do it? You go and try and you'll discover it is of all things the most impossible. I know of nothing in the world tonight that so condemns me and makes me feel so utterly hopeless and completely helpless as to read about the life of Jesus Christ. There was no sin in him. He never committed a single sin. Nobody could convict him of sin or point a finger at him. And yet I'm being told that that's the light he gives me, shows me how to do it, and I get up and I follow him. I say that puts me immediately in in the depths of the lowest hell. Condemns me utterly. No, no. Why not listen to what he says himself? He that followeth me, he says, shall not walk in darkness. Well, why not? Oh, he says for this reason. But shall have the light of life. What an interesting expression. The light of life. Not merely a light shining outside, but a light that gives me life. And a life that gives me more light. It's the light of life. This is the most glorious expression in many ways in the whole of the scripture. What does he do? How is he the light for us at this point? Well, I say, thank God, it isn't by shining a light outside me. It's by putting a light inside me. It's by giving me life. This is the great message of this Christian gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does this mean? Oh, I do pray that I may be given the power and the force of the Spirit to put this clearly to you this evening. Am I speaking to somebody who's feeling utterly and completely hopeless about himself or herself? Am I speaking to somebody who says, you know, all you've said is right. I could have said it much better than you. I'm a living instance of it. I know exactly what you mean. I've got no willpower left. I've tried. I've made my resolutions. I've got wife and children pleading with me, but I can't. I've made my resolve since I came to London, but I go down. Temptation's too much for me. It meets me at the street corner. I get it everywhere. It's in the paper shouting at me. I try to be pure, but the whole world is against me. You're right. There's something rotten within Am I speaking to such a person? My dear friend, listen to this. The message of this gospel is not that a light is put before you 
or a beam of light looking at some great cord which you've now got to rise up and raise yourself up by your bootstrings in order that you may live it and practice it? No, no. It isn't imitating Christ. He says, he that followeth me, you say. I know, but listen. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. He shall have. It'll be given to him. What'll be given to him? The light of life. What is this? Well, it's this. It is something that God does to you. It is something that God does in your soul, in the very depths of your being. No man can make himself a Christian. No man can follow Christ. No man can walk in the light with Christ as he is in and of himself. No, no, he doesn't ask us to do it, thank God. This is a gospel, this is good news. He stands and says, I am the light of the world. You need no longer remain in darkness. Follow me and I'll give you the light of life. What is it? Oh, it's this I say. It is this operation of God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it isn't outside you, it's inside you. You see, the gospel method is this. It doesn't put things right by changing the environment. It puts things right by changing us. And then we change the environment. You don't all change the house in the hope that you'll change the man. You change the man who's smashing up his home. And when he becomes a new and a sober man, he makes a new home. Light of life. You know, the essence of this gospel is to say this, that what matters is not what we do, but what God does to us. That is the central message of this gospel. It's the gift of God. By grace are he saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The whole. And this is the glory. And this is why one is so moved by it. And this is why I say, I am holding before you the only light in the world tonight. It is not what man can do because he cannot. It is what God can. It is what God has done. It is what God has done when he sent his only begotten son into this world. For he sent him not only to die on that cross for our guilt and for our sin and shame. He sent him that he might take human nature unto himself. And it's in him still. And you know what God does is by his spirit he puts something of that nature into us. It's what the Bible calls being born again. It's what it calls regeneration. It's what it calls a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How? Has the world been changed? Not a bit of it. It's the man who's changed. And when the man is changed, you see, he feels he's in a new world. Nothing is as it was before. Everything is different. This is the new birth. This is putting into man a new principle of life. A new nature, a new heart, a new disposition. It makes a new man of him. That's the gospel. Christ came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what he said. What does this mean? Well, you see, what it means is this. This new principle of life that is put within us gives us a new disposition. And that's our fundamental need. It gives us a new attitude to everything. It gives us a new outlook upon everything. It entirely changes a man's attitude to God. As we were, we were all haters of God, you know. Every one of us. Don't think you've always believed in God. In your heart of hearts, by nature, you always hate God and wish there wasn't a God. But the moment this new disposition is put into you, your whole outlook and attitude towards God have changed. Oh, you realize that God is God, how wonderful. That he hasn't ever smitten you and blasted you off the face of the earth, you rebel. Fool that you were, how did he ever tolerate you? And you begin to see his love and his grace and his mercy and compassion. And your supreme desire now is to know God and to serve him and to honor him and to live to his glory. Your new view, and your new view of yourself. You lived like an animal before. You lived in that narrow little world. Self, ambition, greed, envy, desire to get on, to be better than... Oh, it all goes, the miserable life that it was. And you say, I'm a living soul. I'm a pilgrim of eternity. I'm only a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. I'm but a journeyman. I'm only traveling through. This is not my home. I'm meant for God. I'm destined for God. Your vision is a vision of eternity. Your whole horizon is expanded. Your orientation 
is entirely different. That's what the new disposition does. And most valuable of all, instead of hating the light and loving the darkness, you now begin to love the light and to hate the darkness. That's what we want to get rid of, isn't it? Is this desire for sin, the craving, the lust, the passion, whatever it is, that's what the thing, that's the thing that must go, and that's what does go. A new desire. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you'll never hunger and thirst after righteousness until you've got this new life, this new nature, this new disposition. But the moment you've got that, oh, as Peter puts it, as a newborn baby, you'll desire the sincere milk of the word. You'll want to understand the Bible. You'll want to know how to pray. You'll want to know how to live a righteous and a holy life. These will be your ambitions and desires, so different from what it was. You're a new man, you see. And not only that, when God works this mighty, miraculous operation in the soul, He sets us free from the old power that used to tyrannize over us and dominate our lives. Oh, says the Apostle Paul, the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free from the law of sin and death. What is it to become a Christian? Well, says Paul in writing to the Colossians in the first chapter, I think it's verse 15, who hath translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You're taken out to the dominion of the devil. You're born in it. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And he is more powerful than any one of us. The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. You try and fight the devil, he'll beat you every time. Oh yes, we are born under his dominion. But you know, when God does this to you, he'll take you out of that dominion. He'll put you into his dominion. Dead to sin. Dead to the law. No longer under the rule and reign and dominion of Satan. Translated out of his kingdom into the kingdom of his dear son. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. He sets the prisoner free. These are not words, these are facts. This is what you see happening in the New Testament. This is the testimony of the church and her saints throughout the centuries. Men who were steeped in sin in the dregs and depths of degradation who'd lost their willpower, their self-respect, lost everything under the power of this gospel are made new men. Set on their feet, made strong. He sets the prisoner free out of the dominion of Satan. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And then, you see, he puts new power into you. He'll put his own spirit into you. The spirit that was in Jesus Christ when he lived in this world, when he lived that sinless, spotless life. Do you know that very spirit is put into us? The same spirit comes to dwell within us. So that we are not left alone in this hopelessness and in this darkness. Our minds are illuminated by the Spirit. We have this new understanding. He works in us, creates new ideas, creates new desires, gives us a new understanding, delivers us from the tyranny and the bondage of Satan, and strengthens our feeble will, makes us strong, makes us more than conquerors. He's in us, working mightily within us, an energy of God. To deliver us from the darkness. To set us free. To make us clean. And to keep us clean. I, he says, am the light of the world. And that's what he means. Plenteous grace in thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make me, keep me. Pure within Thou of life, the fountain art. 
freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. Pray that prayer to him in your weakness, in your failure, in your hopelessness, in your despair. Fly to Jesus Christ. He won't mock you by just giving you a law. He won't mock you by saying, now come along, follow me, imitate me, live as I live. Here's my teaching, put it into practice. Oh, no, no, he knows you can't do it. He knows you're utterly helpless. Go to him as you are in all your helplessness and sin and shame. He'll assure you that he's died for your sins. He'll assure you that you've got free pardon. And he'll give you life anew. Ask him for it. Plead with him for it. Say, I'm in the dark and there's darkness within me. But I've seen this truth. Christ, give me the light of life. Give me life. I'm dying. Give me the water of life. Put it in me. I want it as the woman of Samaria had it. Springing up within me into everlasting life. Give it me. Go to him. In your hunger, in your thirst. In your weakness, in your failure, in your shame. Oh, what a blessed, what a glorious gospel. It postulates nothing in you nor in me, except that you realize your need. You see, it's all this. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is God who will do this for you. It's God's action, operation upon you. Christ came in order to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. And you have but to go to him as you are. Ask him for it. And he will give it you. Listen to him speaking to you. I am the light of the world. He, you, he, the individual that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. He won't any longer walk in darkness. He shall have the light of life. Go to him. Receive it. Amen.